Someone You Should Know, a program about people you know and even more that you don't. Hosted by Stuart Sachs, veteran, husband, father, and grandfather. Now, here's your host, Stuart Sachs. Well, it's a Wednesday morning, it's 10 o'clock, and that means it's another edition of Someone You Should Know. Thanks for being with us, and thanks for all the comments that we get from week to week about how you enjoy the show, how you're sharing the show, liking the show. Please keep it up. Tell your friends about someone you should know. Go back and look at some of the past past programs. I I was realized that I'm I'm almost 400 episodes of this program over the last seven years. It's been absolutely incredible. And we are brought to you today by our good friends over at No Sweat Experts. You know, it is never too early to make sure that your air conditioning and heating system is working properly. We're getting ready to transition from winter into spring. You want to make sure that your air conditioner system is up to par and all. And the folks over at No Sweat Experts will take good care of you Trust me, they take good care of me, they'll take good care of you too. Well, I want to welcome a very special guest today, and I will tell you that I'm going to have to watch everything that I say on this show today because I have a real true life investigative reporter. And if you say something wrong to an investigative reporter, it could come back to haunt you. So Robert Riggs, welcome to Someone You Should Know. So, Stuart, thank you. You're worried about me fact-checking you, huh? Yeah, yes. <laughs> and and who would have thought that, that what, uh, less than a decade ago, we didn't even know what the phrase fact-checking even meant? Well, unfortunately, today, truth is a commodity in short supply, so we need it. And I mean, you have made you have made a, a career out of it, really, uh, because you probably see more a uh, uh, variety of information and bogus reports and uh, and crap coming through the media in every which way that you have made it a, a career of trying to find out what is right, what is wrong. Well, of course, today it's like a fire hose, drinking from a fire hose. Uh, when my broadcast news career ended in 2008, the internet and the social had not taken hold like it has today and where now anybody can claim they're an expert and it really makes it difficult uh, for the public and it makes all of us vulnerable to disinformation yes and and it just seems year after year it seems to multiply you know i I've often said to to my wife and to our listeners and everything, I just don't understand when lying became in fashion, uh, you know, that it was okay. Just say whatever you want to say, whether it's right or wrong, because you can either later uh, endorse what you said as truth or just deny, or it was taken out of context or write a retraction on page 85 or something. Uh, it's just that, People are getting away with with falsehoods uh, instead of you know doing their due diligence and when they say something, make it right the first time. Yes. Well, <clears throat> I'm a product of Northeast Texas and East Texas. Uh, my father, uncles were all World War II veterans. My parents were children of the Depression. 
And I, it was always just drilled into me that the only thing you had was your word and your reputation and your and honesty. I mean, it's I heard it over and over. That's all you really have. And it's gone. It seems to be gone of I'm often asked as an investigative reporter, well, Robert, who do you trust? Well, nobody until I can really check it out. Yeah. It, it, and uh, you started, is this what you studied when, uh, when you were growing up, uh, uh, when you went into, into college? You're a product of Texas A&M, correct? Correct. I followed my uncle who I'm named after there. He was in there in World War II and his class, their junior year got called to the war. And fortunately he survived, came back and finished on the GI Bill. But I, as a child, was fascinated with flight and flying. And I had a, if you went in my room, there were model airplanes suspended from the ceiling. Uh, I had gas-powered airplanes, uh, notebooks, scrapbooks, just loved it, breathed it. Learned to fly in high school, traded out work with a crop duster for flying lessons, and got appointed to the Air Force Academy, and you had to go in those days to your nearest uh, air base for a flight physical. Lo and behold, found out I had astigmatism, and that ended that. <laughs> so uh, I went to Texas A&M and really kind of tried just to f- find myself, kid from East Texas. Um, and I ended up, long story, but I ended up in architecture, studying architecture and construction, and it was a life-changing experience for me. I, you know, in high school, I was not the considered the most likely to succeed or most popular at all. Um, and I worked part-time. So I wasn't involved in a lot of extracurricular activities, played a little baseball. But uh, at AM, I really came out and I ran for a student governor. I was a student senator, became interested in politics. Uh, it was just an awakening for me in those days. And this was uh, during Vietnam, the protest and everything else. And a and was a military school. And um, those of us interested in politics were more interested in, well, you know, how do we change, work within the system to change it? And so when I graduated, I went to uh, Washington, D.C. and went to work for a senior, the senior member of Congress named Wright Patman. Wow. And, and, you know, I mean, right away, I'm probably thinking like a lot of people that are watching and listening right now. Oh, wait a minute. He went from uh, architecture and all to politics in, in, in Washington. That that's that's kind of an interesting bridge to cross. Well, my dad had the same reaction. You can imagine working class <laughs> in, in solo business. And and uh, I got worried one day he showed up on campus unannounced. And that meant he had closed, he was, he had a watch repair shop. That meant he'd closed his business. You close your business, you got no money coming in that day. But he'd come down, he went over to the architecture college because he knew I was trying to go to DC and to ask what's happened to my boy, you know, five years of architecture, engineering, and he's going to go, he wants to go to Washington. And the Dean of the college and everybody uh, knew me, knew me very well. And they said, he's, you know, he's doing the right thing. This is good what he's doing. And, and then my dad was all, all on board. And, uh, 
was extremely then proud that I became a congressional staffer. So what were your, what were your duties as a professional staffer when you, when you got to Washington, uh, you know, what were some of your, some of your first assignments and duties? Oh, it's interesting you say that because I arrived there with a five-year architecture engineering degree and I'm a gopher, <laughs> you know, you're looking, <laughs> yeah. looking I'm, I'm a gopher. And, uh, but it was what I realized in hindsight later was all a test. It was a test. Can you, can you do it? Can, um, and one of the things that happened was that Wright Patman started the first Watergate investigation. Now, I'll tell you a little something about him. I arrived on Capitol Hill in his office in May of 1972. He had been elected in 1929. And it was the days of the seniority system where the chairman, chairs of the committee went to whoever had outlived everybody. And <laughs> uh, it was pretty dictatorial on those committees. Most of the chairmanships in the house were by Texans. I will, and, and then later that system was thrown out, but I will say for that system, they got things done. Things really did move. And, uh, Sam Rayburn, who'd been one of his peers had a old saying, the speaker of the house from Texas that you got to go along to, you got to get along to go along. Um, yeah. But I arrived there and I, uh, he had started the first, what was, became the Watergate committee, but it was the first Watergate investigation through the banking committee trying to track where did uh, money, illegal money that went to the Watergate burglars, where did it come from? How did it get into the, the president's political coffers for his campaign? And I was just, a, I was a researcher. And in, you know, in those days, if you wanted something from the Library of Congress, the Securities and Exchange Commission, you had to go there in person and dig through files. And I mean, mountains of files. Um, the card catalog in, uh, in those days, you know, if you remember the old Dewey Decimal System when you were in school. And right, catalogs, right. As I recall, I think there were 22,000 files, you know, and so you'd be looking through that, everything else. And the Library of Congress back in the back, there are, are stacks and it's floor after floor. And my, I'm about six, one in my head would almost touch the ceiling and you're back in there digging. There were nights I slept in the place and it, you know, the library staff was like, wanted to kick me out. And I was like, Oh no, I've got an assignment here. I've got to get this done. And I, and I worked for Wright Patman and they would go, Oh, chairman Patman, never mind. do what you want to do. But, um, uh, I had a knack for digging, just digging stuff out and a curiosity. And eventually that led me to get appointed to the joint committee on defense production, uh, as a staff investigator. And I, you know, I'm a young, I was a young kid from Texas. And fortunately I had a lot of senior people watching me that I worked through. So I didn't get in trouble. And, um, that committee began to take up uh, things the Watergate committee didn't have authority to investigate. And a lot of it um, involved bribery and slush funds. And our work led to the passage of the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. But I had a top secret security clearance. Uh, most of the staff in there were from the CIA and def uh, military intelligence. They wanted nothing to do with anything, the media, anything. And so I, there was a lot of 
focus on the committee. And so I, since I worked for the chairman and that gave me a lot of power and cachet, I dealt with the New York Times, Washington Post, CBS correspondence, that sort of thing. And that's, that's where I really got interested in journalism. And, and you were, and, and how old were you at this time? Oh, what? 22, 22, 23. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's hard to believe that you, you, you got to Washington all of a sudden you've got this top security clearance and you are digging to get the information. Mm-hmm. And, you know, folks bear in mind, this is all long before we had the internet at our disposal. I mean, there was no Google. Right. There, there were uh, platforms to just ask a question, you know, Alexa, you know, tell me this. Uh, as uh, Robert says, you had to dig. I remember remember going to the libraries and digging through drawer after drawer just to do a, a project or a, a paper for school because you had to collect all that information. Yes. You had to usually take notes longhand, then go home, sit down at the typewriter and put it in some kind of form. Uh, and, and back in those days, too, newspapers, back issues were on microfiche, you know, like film, right. and you'd have to sit and look at a reader and look at it. I, it was a painstaking, painstaking. But I also learned, too, that you had to talk to people, interview people. And um, now I must say that uh, Mr. Patman's chief of staff, his name was Baron Ignatius Shacklett. He'd put himself through Harvard Law School in the Depression. He had worked for Army Intelligence World War II. He'd been in the Truman White House. He had incredible experience. And, you know, he had a Napoleonic personality and was built like Napoleon, and a fire plug, too. Yeah. And he was a quite a taskmaster. But fortunately, he took me under his arm and um, kept me out of trouble, gave me lots of good advice. Uh, I have to say that, you know, I came in, you know, I'd been student government A&M, chairman of some committees on campus. I thought I was hot stuff, and I brash. <laughs> and about the third week on the job, uh, you know, I, ins- I accidentally insulted him. And I knew things were bad because we were standing in this huge secretarial pool. And every typewriter suddenly stopped. The room went silent. And I went, oh, no, I'm I'm about to be fired. And what happened, he assigned me this job that was awful, just awful. And uh, I did it, got through it, and it won his respect. But he really, really was my godfather there. And I, and I always stress the students I work with and everybody, you need mentors. You need to be mentored by people who've got a lot of experience. Because I can remember walking into Mr. Patman's office and he was called chairman. He was chairman of five committees and nobody, nobody called him by his first name, maybe a senior member, but it was always Mr. Chairman. Mr. chairman. And I, I would go in with a stack of subpoenas that I'd done, I'd made out. And the chairman would look up, be, he'd be signing them. And he would say, and, and Mr. and Shacklett would be standing there and he would say, now, young man, I'm, I'm signing stuff. I don't know what I'm signing here. You're not going to get me in trouble here, are you? And the, and the chief of staff, Shacklett, would speak up and say, now, Mr. Chairman, you know that I would never, never let that happen. That won't happen. 
and off we'd go. Um, so, but it was, it was a great experience of just working with people, learning how to work with people. And I might say back in high school, my job has always put me in contact with adults, dealing with adults. And I really had learned how to communicate personal communication skills, how to work with people. So you weren't, you weren't threatened by being around all of these uh, older, mature, seasoned uh, individuals in Washington. You're this young 20-year-old, 20 uh, 20-something that's asking all the questions. Uh, did you ever feel uncomfortable in that role, or did you ever feel that you were making any of them uncomfortable in what you were doing? No. And you know, what was interesting, there was a group of young men and women, my age, just like me that had showed up in Washington at the same time working for senior members. And there must've been two dozen or more of us. And we all became friends and we hung out together on weekends and everything else. And, um, you know, shared experiences, stories, what have you. Now, you know, when I came into Mr. Patman's, my gosh, I guess he must have had, if you spread over the committees, there must have been 150 staff or more. And I'm at the bottom of the pyramid. And, you know, your influence or power as a staffer is directly related to the access you have to the member, be it in Congress, be it the president of the United States, be it in a, you know, in a corporation, close you are to the big decision maker. You can ride their coattails of what you want to do. And, my friends and I, we were all like challenged about, uh, gosh, does the, um, they don't know who I am. I'm just a, a nothing down here and stuff. Well, we figured out something. The members would go home on weekends to their districts and they needed a ride to the airport and they needed somebody there late Sunday night to pick them up. And we all began volunteering. Uh, Mr. Chairman, I'll be there. I'd be, I'd take him to the airport, take his bags in, get him checked in. And I would be there Sunday night. And most of us would pass on parties or dates on Sunday nights. And there we'd all be sitting and picking up our members. And guess what? Now we've got one on one time of with a member. Now they know who we are. They're asking us questions about our life, our interest, you know, and you know, that led me to one, you know, once getting a call at, Hey, uh, the chairman wants you to go to the White House with him for an, a deal. So, yeah, his wife is gone. So, um, you know, I, so I can remember even later on, I'm a staffer on the defense committee and I get a call like, hey, you need to get over here. The The chairman wants you to take him, drive him, take him downtown to an event. I'm like, Shaq, that we call the, I call the chief staff Shaq is from Shaq to Shaq wow, I'm really busy. I don't have time for this. He says, young man, you created this monster. You get your butt over here and drive. (laughs) So do do you perceive, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going decades forward now. Do you perceive that, 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 that same kind of, of, uh, rhetoric and that same kind of, 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 personality exists in Washington between, um, you know, the staffers and the people that they're working with, or has that eroded over the years? I think it has eroded. I still have friends there, uh, that started with me just as I described that are now lobbyist, influential lobbyist. Um, my wife, um, 
worked for the late Senator Lloyd Benson, who was chairman of Senate Intelligence and Senate Finance. He later ran, later ran as vice president, and he was a great man. I covered him. She worked for him, but uh, he'd been a B-17 bomber pilot and stuff, and yep. just he was known as a cloakroom senator in the cloakroom behind the chamber. That's where he got stuff done. He was highly respected, and that's how he got votes. And he was never critical of anybody. None of that. It was never personal. Well, that's all changed. You know, it's like a blood sport up there now. And, uh, you know, if you're saying nasty things about the other side and other people, how are you ever going to get them to work with you on legislation? And, and I'm sorry, but politics is the art of compromise. Well, yeah, but it, it seems to me that it's turned a little bit more into to a, a sport of mudslinging sure. uh, and, yeah. you know, and, and keep keep your wall up between you and the other side that uh, it's just not not cool to cross the aisle and shake a hand yeah. and sit down and talk. Uh, well, and, my, you know, my, media, would you say the media has had a large part of, of that happening? I think they've been a part of it by focusing on it, making it the focus rather than, you know, nuts and bolts of what's going on in legislation, focusing more on who's up, who's down, and these squabbles. And then we have a situation now where the extreme right and the extreme left of each party control the parties and kind of control the narrative. And it gets all of this attention. And, um, you know, my wife and I work for Democrats, but we're really moderates now, middle of the road, just to the to the right. And I mean, it's been presidential election after presidential election. We didn't feel like there was anybody on either side we could get excited about voting for. You know, I just want somebody that can run the government, understands foreign policy and wants to keep America strong and wants to create a world. And I think most people feel this way. Will they create, you know, a future in the United States where our children can uh, uh, prosper? Yeah, and 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 I also feel that they that that not enough time is being devoted to moving us forward. Uh, it's a matter of just uh, squabbling uh, back and forth, and, and uh, very often, uh, my wife and I will look at what is going on and the rhetoric that we we see on on the uh, broadcast news, and I say to myself. Uh, what's happening with the with the immigrant children on the border? Uh, what's happening over in uh, in uh, Ukraine today? Mm -hmm. uh, what's going on in the world? Because everything yeah. seems to be so so centralized in in their focus and rhetoric that we don't see the big picture that yeah. you used to see on the evening news. They would cover so much more. Yes. Now I will tell you, there are good members there thoughtful members you know, yes. that, that want to be statespeople on both in both parties. We never get to hear from them. You know, the, the, the media goes after the shrillest and uh, you know, sure. that's, and that's part of the kind of yeah, part there's of the far, far too many that want to be yeah. in front of the camera. You're right. You talked about the backroom politics when things used to get done because People would sit down in one-on-one -on -one and just hash things out until they could come up with with some kind of a viable approach. Uh, uh, today, it's it's like just 
throw whatever is out there and the media is waiting outside the no. door to, to jump, to jump yeah. on you. Well, and the other problem today is that we have social media and it's, it's toxic. Twitter is toxic. It's the, the negative rises to the top. Of course, we've learned that the algorithm creates these thought bubbles and the algorithm feeds this and the Russians exploited it. Um, so we have, that is a factor that's really hurting our system. And I think the Chinese and the uh, Russians, they're delighted that what's going on. And they're manipulating it, I can tell you. I, I'm part of a, an FBI group that's from the private sector called InfraGuard. It was established after 9-11 to protect infrastructure. And so we, get, we all have security clearances and we get briefings. And, uh, you know, there, there's, we're, we're at war every day. And I'll tell you something that I realize is that young kid from East Texas, when I got a, had a security clearance and I'm seeing cables and other stuff, I was like, oh my God, we are, we're at war here every day. We, the public never hears about it, but what the bottom line of it is, is that everybody else wants our stuff. It's that simple. And if they think they can come and take it, they will come and take it. it and it's just you know, it's a hard fact of life. It's humanity. It's a hard, it's, it's difficult for, I think, a lot of people to understand that it comes down to that. If you look at the march of history, same thing has happened. So uh, I covered President Reagan and I really, and especially in hindsight, respect for, you know, he was uh, trust but verify. He was peace through strength and uh, same Teddy Roosevelt. And we've kind of gotten away from that. And so people, you know, I, I'll, I'll tell you one thing. I don't think Russia would have done in the Ukraine what it's doing now. If, if Ronald Reagan had been president, wouldn't have happened. Um, so, or George HW Bush. Mm. Uh, and I think that's one of my biggest concerns is that the, the political leadership where they're squabbling and other stuff and various presidents have not, they're not sending a message to the world. Don't mess, you know, don't mess with Texas. Yeah. Uh, would, would you agree that, that cybersecurity is probably the, the biggest area of concern in, in our lives today uh, with, with regard to, to what we're doing and how we're doing it and how we are protecting what we're doing? It's one of the big concerns. Um, you know, I remember there's always somebody trying to break in, no matter what you've of done. Of course. All, that's always going on. And I remember sitting in a conference and I turned to the FBI agent next to me and I said, you know, when I was with the Congressional Committee, maybe it was a lot easier to keep things in locked file drawers in paper. <laughs> so, uh, but it's just not. Than on a computer. Yeah, that's just not the nature of the world. But yeah, it is a major, it is a, it's a major threat. Um and the damage that it can do. And frankly, many American companies, organizations, even the American government has uh, been lax about all of this. They haven't invested the money in it. They haven't stayed up on top of it. You know, uh, you talk to IT people and companies, they feel they're forgotten, but it is, it is critical. But I, I also think, um, I think what's going. I think what's going on in social media, and how it can be manipulated, is one of the bigger threats 
to the company psychologically. Um, frankly, personally, after everything I've seen, um, I don't, I don't believe you should allow an anonymity on it. There are too many people smearing people and putting out false information. They don't have to submit to Facebook identification, anything like that. Now, I've got a paid advertising account with Facebook, and you know I've had to provide them my corporate charter, bank account, passport photos and stuff, but <clears throat> anybody else can go in there and cause mayhem and no consequences. Well, when you see uh, a report that uh, a you know major governmental agency, I mean, even going as high as, uh, for instance, the Pentagon, that hackers have gotten in and 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 uh, taken uh, you know compromising information, um, it it's it's scary. Uh, it, it's very scary, and you wonder how secure is your information. You know, we all walk around with a with a cell phone in our pockets. And we often keep a lot of very sensitive information in our cell phones. And you realize that, oh, well, no, somebody's got to know my code in order to open up my cell phone to access any of that information. Uh, a hacker can get it in moments. Uh, and 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 we we seem to, to forget about that. And then this is on a global scale. That's why I mentioned about cybersecurity because... I read an article that it is probably one of the fastest growing college degrees uh, across the country, uh, programs in our colleges uh, for artificial intelligence and, and, uh, and cybersecurity. Uh, because 20 years from now, we're going to need it even more than what we, we are doing today. Oh, definitely. I mean, I, I have two-step verification set up on all my stuff. If I'm going to log into Facebook or LinkedIn, I get a text message on my phone and I've got to put that code in. So it's an extra, it's an extra step. Well, you know, back, we used to go to the, to uh, the science fiction movies, follow uh, uh, James Bond movies and all where you'd have to go up and either put your eyeball on a screen in order to get in or do a thumbprint or, or a variety of things. And it was all kind of, science fiction and, and, and all, and, and it's, it's today. Uh, a lot of the programs we have in our phones are using yes. facial recognition right. to get in. Right. And that was all something we thought, Oh man, that's really cool, but it'll never happen. Uh, but it, it does, it does happen. And it's always going to be with us. It's such an integral part of everyone's lives. There's always going to be someone trying to exploit it. It's, it's, but like I say, it's <laughs> there's a war there going on all the time. Well, e yes, and 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 uh, and while it is it is uh, happening, uh, as when something is uh, developed, there are bad guys out there that are already on the road mm -hmm. to trying to undo mm -hmm. that. Uh, takes me back to the to the first time you you went out and bought your first. Uh, 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 police detector that you used to yeah. put on the dashboard of your car yes. and all because it would, it would beep whenever there was a policeman nearby. Well, pretty soon the, the bad guys were finding a way to, to let the police know how to override your, your system. So now you had to go out and get the super system mm -hmm. in order to mm -hmm. do it. So it's, it's always a one upsmanship. So it reminds me of this as a kid, one of my favorite magazines was mad magazine. Oh Yeah. And Alfred E. Newman. Alfred E. Newman. But do you remember the ongoing cartoon of Spy versus Spy? 
Yes, it was this very thing. <laughs> so, yeah. I, I, I'd like to ask a question because, because you are an investigative reporter and you dig excuse <laughs> me, to, to find your answers. Has there ever been a time or a place because you've traveled overseas on a lot of your investigative reporting? Have you ever felt your life was threatened because you were digging perhaps in places that other people didn't want you to dig? Yes. And over the course of my career, I, I received even threats by telephone. Um, you, you will, you'll even see it. Uh, you know, we've got a, my podcast, true crime reporter, the first season, 17 episodes is about serial killer, Kenneth McDuff, who was, uh, in, let out of prison in Texas under a cloud of corruption and then resumed killing again. And when I began digging into corruption in that, and we taught, we have a little bit of that in the TV show. Oh boy. Yeah. The threats cut started coming. Uh, the United States attorney out in Waco wanted to put us marshals in my home. Um, so yeah, I've, I've had stories. I've had corruption stories where yes, you know, my wife's taken calls. So it, it has happened. Yes. The, uh, your, the, uh, uh, website is going to be scrolling across the screen from time to time. And I urge everybody that is watching and listening to that, sh to this show to visit the website, because not only is there very valuable and interesting information about Robert and the things that he's done, but, uh, the true crime reporter podcast that he is doing is absolutely fascinating. I've had the opportunity to listen to several of the episodes already. And I mean, it's, it's like watching a good episode of Dateline or so uh, the, uh, the depth that you go uh, in the podcast that you do with uh, Bill Johnston uh, and, and also that uh, Freed to Kill uh, which discusses, uh, you know, those that are on death row uh, that that uh, continue their their crime mm -hmm. sprees because they are they are uh, freed. Uh, what what was the the impetus to get you to go into this this uh, uh, area of of investigating uh, the freed to kill? Uh, mm -hmm. These these serial killers and all. How, where in your where in your career did you say you know this is something I really want to sink my teeth into? Well, I had, you know, I was a congressional staffer. Uh, when I was a, a kind of an advanced man in the first Carter presidential campaign, came out of that and was like, okay, what I want to do, and it was television. So I finally got in. Bob Schieffer of CBS News, a fellow Texan from Fort Worth, gave me an enormous yeah. amount of help and support. And I started in New York covering government, the New York State Legislature and stuff, as an investigative reporter. And um, then went to Washington for WFAA in Dallas, Channel 8 News. In those days, it was like a network. It was a powerhouse. It... If you wanted to be a correspondent, I remember Schieffer telling me this, said, Robert, if you want to be a correspondent here at CBS or ABC, you need to go to WFAA. They run like a network. That's where we go looking for correspondents. Uh, 
And interestingly, the day that I started at WFAA, Scott Pelley, who was later the anchor of the CBS Evening News, started. It was a great training ground. Uh, a lot of money was spent. Uh, great emphasis on excellence. Uh, now, all that changed. That doesn't exist anymore. But I was covering the White House, Pentagon, everything. And frankly, I just was burned out. I was tired. And I asked to get reassigned, and I got sent to Austin, where there was a bureau. And I might say during those days, when the legislature was in session, there were bureaus of newspapers and other TV stations around the state. There are none now, nothing. Nobody, yeah. no one's watching. It's all been just gutted. Uh, in in part because, may, the, you know, the television, they don't have the revenue they had, but also in part as a, uh, there was a whole change by the leadership and all of the, well, this stuff isn't important. They just started going cheap and they weren't, they didn't want to spend money on digging, but in those days they did. And I arrived and this is 1990. And I, one of the things I noticed that especially in Houston every day on the news and in the uh, headlines, there were these horrendous stories of, of violence, of, and it was a stranger on stranger and buried in the bottom of the story always was, it was a, an inmate out on early parole. It was kind of a throwaway in there. Of course, you know, I'm new, I'm coming here and it really stayed. And at first I thought, well, is this kind of exploitive journalism where, you know, if it leads, if it bleeds, it leads. And as I dug more, oh no, it was starting in Dallas and Fort Worth and, and I began talking to a member of the legislature. He was just a little bit older than I, a young guy. He was the chairman of the Senate Criminal Justice Committee. His name was Ted Lyon. And Ted, earlier in his career, had been a police officer and put himself through law school at night. And, you know, we started talking about it. And he had some hearings. And, man, I, I, I thought the bullshit meter was just redlining during these meters of how these parole board members were explaining why these people were out. They would say, well, you know, they were a model inmate. I don't have a, a crystal ball. Well, there's no such thing as a model. They inmate. found religion. They got their GED yeah. or an, another degree. Yeah. Well, and so as I began digging, I discovered that, gosh, upwards of 60 former death row inmates had been let out on parole. And as we dug further, we wow. found out that, uh, the, the administration there, the Clements administration, Republican administration, the last, you know, you'd never think Republicans would do this, but frankly, both parties were guilty. Um, they had defied the, uh, federal court judge that was over the Ruiz case about overcrowding. They defied him for 10 years. And instead of building prisons, uh, to relieve overcrowding, they did nothing. Meanwhile, if, they were all running for re-election. It's tough on crime. They were passing longer sentences, but they had nowhere to put all these people. And so uh, to avoid the political embarrassment of a judge taking over, literally in the dead of night, they started releasing 150 inmates a day. And uh, there was a hearing when Lyon kind of broke a member <clears throat> who it told the truth and said, we're at the bottom of the barrel. and. So I started digging into my stuff and um, <sighs> looking into who are these people that have gotten out and how did they get out? 
and one of them was Kenneth Allen McDuff. He had randomly murdered three teenagers in Fort Worth in 19, the 1960s. Horrendous crime. Shocked everybody. And um, he'd been sentenced to put on death row. But what happened in 1972, the Supreme Court uh, struck down the death penalty. Right. And right. Um, all of these inmates on death row around the country their sentences were commuted to life. They became eligible for parole. But who would imagine that anybody would let, in their right mind would let them out? But what happened was a combination of the overcrowding, also a combination of corruption, of taking money. And that's what I began to uncover. And uh, found, uh, you know, a member of the family told me that McDuff's family had allegedly paid twenty five grand to get him out the day after he walked out of prison, he started killing again. And I mean, he left a string of victims up and down interstate 35, uh, here in Texas into Mexico. We'll never know how many, um, I actually had help from a, one of the original FBI profilers, Bill Hazelwood, who was an amazing agent who helped me. And he said, you know, you've got your hands here on a, what I classify is the great white shark of serial killers. He's a sadistic sexual serial killer in that his pleasure is the suffering, keeping him alive and suffering hour after hour is control and pain. And that was McDuff. And ironically, as you know, I'm doing reporting, I'm breaking stories and there are hearings going on in the state capitol. <clears throat> about all of these guys that are out, including McDuff. McDuff is cruising with accomplices um, blocks from the Capitol in Austin to get victims and does abduct a young accountant right after Christmas, out, plain sight from a car wash, never, never to be seen alive again. Um, and it always gets me to this day. You know, we were putting it all out there to the parole board, but it was, it was just corrupt. And, did anybody say, oh, we need to go find out where these people are? What are they doing? Oh, no, no. They were, as I say in the podcast and in the television show, they were freed to kill, and they did. And, you know, it resulted in one of the, the biggest, and Richards then inherited this problem. Right. And it resulted uh, in the biggest prison expansion in the history of the state. And, you know, Ann Richards was a liberal Democrat. No way did she come into office saying, you know, I'm going to build prisons. But to her credit, she did, led by Senator Lyon. Uh, but we're back. You know, we've forgotten the lessons of history. We're back into this situation today around the country with these liberal release and bail policies where violent offenders with gun crimes are walking out, some on personal recognizance, which means, oh, I promise to show up. And they're recommitting. And so Houston is really bad, but I can tell you parts of Dallas, Houston, uh, Austin, New York City, they're dangerous places. You just don't know it. And you obviously see these things from a different perspective than most people do. And uh, I was un unaware of Duff, and, and the general public is probably unaware of these people that are being being released uh, in order to carry on where they left off. Yeah, so. um, 
I like to say McDuff was the probably one of the worst serial killers in U.S. history, and you've never heard of him. Um, yeah, <clears throat> I mean we're 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 you know uh, uh, familiar with the Charles Mansons and 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 those mm-hmm. because uh, they got a lot of the media attention and all. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it's boy. well, what you know, I, I during that that investigation. I spent 10 years of my life on it. I was in, because it spread everywhere. And I was in almost, I probably was in every, every maximum security prison in the state of Texas, talking to inmates, others. Uh, Heck, one of my, my, this always blows people's minds. One of my best sources about the corruption, what was going on was the hitman for the Aryan Brotherhood. If you can imagine that. So, you know, I developed a, a network of sources in the prison system that uh, really helped with it. Uh, but in the beginning, the the threats came out of the prison system in that because of the corruption, everybody thought, hey, my day's coming. We're going to pay. I got a ticket out of here. And when I started doing the reporting, that ended. Oh, it all it shut it down. And then they were mad at Robert. Then later to my good fortune, McDuff became the poster boy for all of these issues from my reporting. And then the, everybody in the prison system wanted to kill him when he came back. He had to stay in until he was executed, stay in solitary and other stuff. But the one thing I've learned that I think that people don't realize, you would realize that if you were ever set in a court hearing with a very violent criminal uh, serial killer and stuff what you'd learn is evil old testament evil walks amongst us it really does and it doesn't look evil looks like the old guy next door i'm telling if you were standing in line with uh, mcduff at the checkout counter uh, he's a big guy but he didn't come across as threatening uh but then when you see the mug shots and the stuff after he's arrested oh boy does he look spooky but i can tell you in civilian clothes and all he looked kind of big goofy guy until that other part turned on and then there was a, and he had a certain type of woman. He was after petite brown hair, uh, that he could control. And boy, then when that turned on, you could, he was a, he was a shark. It, it's borderline chilling, Robert. And, and to think that you have made your, your really life focused, uh, out of, uh, you know, investigative reporting and now uh doing these podcasts which i think are you know again folks go to the website and all and follow the i i just signed up to receive your your posts uh about things that are going on and and new new reports that are coming out well worth signing up because it's uh you're you're an incredible person I wish we had another hour to talk and I've, I've taken up a lot of your valuable time and we've barely scratched the surface. Well, I'm fine, but I I would say for listeners who are concerned about public safety and I always worry about the young people and there's no better example than the uh, murders in Idaho. And we've got an episode where I've got a fugitive hunter homicide detective and I, we break down that arrest warrant to explain here's how they did it. Here's what he was doing. And uh, to bring an understanding, one of the things we want to do with our episodes, we want to help educate. Um, And 
If you listen to that episode and you've got a son or daughter in college or young, you know, adult out starting in the workplace in a city, there are lessons there. There are lessons about being aware of your surroundings and uh, understanding there is there is evil out there. You can't go around all the time looking over your shoulder, but you got to be. You have to be careful. You got to be aware. But you know, the people don't see what I see, and some of the episodes are with me are done by Bill Johnston, a former U.S. attorney. Bill prosecuted the parole board chairman out of the McDuff case. It was corrupt. He um, also started the manhunt for McDuff when no one else would. Yeah, uh, and he's he's prosecuted cartel members. You name it, he's done it all. So you got an interesting perspective on, from both of us that you don't get anywhere else. And frankly, I don't like most true crime podcasts or people are doing it. They have no experience. I feel some of it is exploitive. I always want to say, you know, sure. You're kind of giggly about this, but you know, someone died here and they've got family left out here. So, um, we try to do a balance. You'll, you'll hear inmates on, uh, my podcast. I've got a episode coming up, uh, of a major league baseball player, successful 14 years, you know, gets a drinking problem, which leads to other yields. And he ends up spending three and a half years in the Texas penitentiary. And that's not a good place to go. Believe me. And we're going to hear his story and kind of how he remade himself. Well, we, we, as I say, we have just barely scratched the surface of your career. And I, I, I'm going to reach out to you in the future and, and maybe we'll do another session because uh, some of the work that you've done investigating Congress, uh, uh, domestic and international terrorism, uh, there's a, an awful lot of things to, to still d- discuss. So would you come back for another, another show? Oh, I'd love to. And, you know, one of the subjects people ask me to speak on sometimes is entrepreneurship of how did you, you know, how did you get here? And so in 2008, when I got cut, the recession, thousands of newspaper were cut overnight. And so it was suddenly like, uh uh-oh, I got I got two kids in college. How am I going to do this? How do I run a business? How do I, you know, (laughs) and, uh, I've, I've, I like to say I've got a PhD in the school of hard knocks of content entrepreneurship. <laughs> uh, yeah. And I do, th- there are a lot of people out there today that are ready to, you know, they're tired of the, the corporate gig and they want to try to have control of their lives. Exactly. And, but there's a path to that. You, you, you really need to think it out. Yeah. Well, Robert, thank you again uh, for for being a guest on Someone You Should Know. I end my show by saying, uh, be yourself because everyone else is already taken. And uh, I think you understand what I'm saying when I say that. Oh, yes. So thank, thank you. Thank you again very, very much. Robert Riggs, Someone You Should Know. See you all again next week for another episode. Take care. Someone you should know.